Star Trek has never been just one thing. While we tend to think we know what Star Trek is now, its worldview, themes and approach to storytelling, as well as its backstory and even characterizations, all came together over time. They were shepherded by diverse voices, including those of the fans. The ideas we associate with Trek are flexible, shifting and changing over time, depending on who was writing it and even who was watching. In this sense, then, Star Trek itself is a mirror universe. Or to put it another way, Star Trek's real mirror universe is our universe. In this podcast, we'll be gazing into the mirror that is Trek and focusing on how that reflection can shift and change. As Garrick once said, Star Trek, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. We're both very old men. We have both been Trekkies for a long time. We have been around long enough for Deep Space Nine to have ruined Star Trek forever. We have been around for Voyager to have ruined Star Trek forever. We have been around for Enterprise to have ruined Star Trek forever. And now we're around for Discovery and Picard to ruin Trek forever. And yet Star Trek remains unruined, hopefully forever. As time goes on, tempers and passions cool. Perspectives change. Absence and nostalgia makes the heart grow fonder. And even shows maligned in their time can be seen in a new light. In their day, Voyager and Enterprise attracted passionate detractors among Trek fandom. But it's been well over a decade. Two decades in Voyager's case. Doug will defend Voyager from a place of real affection, even despite its flaws. And Adam thinks Enterprise is better than Voyager. In today's episode, we're going to have it out once and for all. Which is better, Star Trek Voyager or Star Trek Enterprise, and why? Good morning, I'm Douglas McDonald-Norman. Yes, and I'm Adam Prosser. And today, we are going to discuss two of the Trek series which have attracted some degree of critical criticism, especially during their airing in the late 90s, in Voyager's case, and the early 2000s, in Enterprise's case. This episode began with a bet between Adam and I. We have both spent far too much of our busy, active lives commenting in reply to at Carl in Space, Carl Garcia's journey throughout Star Trek. We made a bet. I thought he'd like Voyager more, and Adam thought he'd like Enterprise more. Adam, why did you think that? Well, uh, I legitimately think Enterprise is the better show. And to be clear, this is not me going, um, wow, it's great and awesome. Uh, I acknowledge that these are two of the weaker Star Trek series, perhaps the two weakest Star Trek series. Uh, that's something else we could discuss. Uh, but um, I, I legitimately thought Enterprise is more interesting. Uh, so I, you know, I, I bet on it from that regard. Uh, I also thought, you know, the kind of stuff Carl... Uh, likes. I mean, he does tend to like, um, you know, a bit nerdier stuff. I think Enterprise gets a little... It, it's. I know we're talking about Star Trek and the nerdiness is uh, in the eye of the beholder, as you might say. Mm. Uh, but uh, the Enterprise kind of gets into uh, Star Trek stuff a little more heavily. It gets into, like, uh, sci-fi stuff a little more heavily. And it, it arguably... Um, 
I found it had a certain jolt of energy to it that Trek had been missing. That's one of the reasons I get engaged with it. It takes a while. It's certainly not there right from the start. Well, maybe. The start isn't isn't actually bad, I think, of Enterprise. Uh, but sometime around... Opinions vary. <laughs> yes, very much. Now, everything I say has to be uh, taken with a massive... Uh, qualification of uh, that we're grading on a curve here, um, but we're grading um, on a stiff. We're grading on a stern and icy cliff. <laughs> Very much so, but I do feel that um, basically, uh, whereas Voyager sort of came onto the scene at the peak of Star the Star Trek Renaissance, maybe the peak of Star Trek's popularity. Period. Um, uh, after Next Generation had just ended and Deep Space Nine was in its early run, uh, and it. It was immediately a very popular show. It was heavily hyped because it was the first uh, show on a new network, and it was actually one of the flagship shows of that new network, which I believe was UPN at the time. Uh, it became Spike. It became other things. I'm a little confused about the timeline in that, but uh, for a while it was the United, the UPN network. Uh, so much like Discovery today, Voyager was kind of set up to be a bedrock for this uh, this new uh, so, uh, situation, and it, it, it sort of... Uh, poached as it were all the fans of De of next generation uh maybe not so much deep space nine but all the De next generation fans kind of went over to voyager and it sort of picked up where next generation had left off and just kind of kept going for seven years and um well of course every show has to have its ups and downs and has to has to win over its audience uh it was a bit you could argue it was on rails it didn't actually have uh, to struggle very much it was one of the most it's actually one of the most popular star trek shows in terms of ratings that ever happened <laughs> oddly enough um and i think that uh led to a certain um uh staleness to the show like there certainly it's in terms of what the uh, creators could do and what the writers were able to do with enterprise uh, star trek was actually sputtering rather badly and uh, this actually led to them i think having to sort of desperately reconfigure the show a few times uh, there were other factors, which we've talked about on other shows, like uh, the fact that 9-11 happened uh, not long after Enterprise uh, premiered. In fact, I think it uh, happened right before uh, <laughs> Enterprise premiered. And um, that uh, had an impact on uh, what they wanted to say with it creatively as well. So there was a certain sense of like being very off balance throughout, throughout Enterprise's entire run, but especially the last couple seasons, which gives it a far more uh, despite all of its flaws it makes it far more interesting to me um you could argue that voyager is the more polished product that it does star trek well as you'd expect it to be done uh but it's it's safe in that regard that is it was safe for the creators they didn't have uh they didn't have to do much to keep their audience and to keep uh the trek machine uh chugging along whereas enterprise was tasked with uh writing the ship as an engine exploded on fire and uh, while that certainly led <laughs> and that's uh, that doesn't sound like a very nice thing to say about enterprise but it did leave creatively it led to it to i think more inter uh, more uh, interesting places more yeah, enterprising I, places you might say i think we could spend this entire episode making up creative metaphors for where voyager stands as compared to where enterprise stands that voyager is the nepo baby born on third base with a silver spoon in its mouth heir to uh, this enormous fortune, whereas Enterprise is the last scion of this fallen noble house um, born on second base that somehow managed to steal first. Or the show constantly <laughs> trying to come up with reasons to exist and trying to justify its place. I 
I agree with you. I think Enterprise is a more the meta story of Enterprise. That is not the story that Enterprise is telling, but the story of how Enterprise was made and its constant desperate attempts to retool itself and to try to anticipate what the American audience could possibly want. I agree that is a more interesting meta story than Voyager. Um, The show which was born with a large fortune and which ended up with a smaller fortune. Um, But for my part, as inter- much as it's more interesting to talk about Enterprise, and as much as Enterprise consistently tries to do interesting things, I just find it a really difficult show to enjoy, even now. Even with 20 years of cooled passions, and even as someone who wasn't an Enterprise anti back 2000, in 2001... For all that Voyager is a show with really low ambitions, and as much as Enterprise tries more ambitious things in terms of its structure than Voyager does as part of its desperate flailing to avoid oblivion, much like Megatron caught in Galvatron's, uh, caught in Unicron's web as he tries to avoid being reformatted into Galvatron, much as that is the case, you can sit down and watch 45 minutes of Voyager and be conscious that it falls within a fairly narrow band, whereas Enterprise falls within a band of interesting experiment to genuinely sub-professional quality. And I just... There are limits to how far you can give gold medals for trying something that in many cases just massively doesn't work. Back to you. <laughs> that's uh, that's great. Well, I, no, I'd like to please. Uh, I would like to hear you keep going. What what is it you think that generally talking about uh, Voyager now specifically uh, over Enterprise? What is it that you think makes Voyager the better show? Like, what would you point to for Voyager? Uh, Voyager works as a hangout show in a way that Enterprise doesn't. For all that, I. Th- and I think Zach Handlin in his recaps of Voyager is really hitting this point at the moment. For all that some of the characters really do have one or two notes that they continue to hit for seven long years, you can tune into Voyager and enjoy spending time with these characters and in particular with how these characters interact with each other. Enterprise, I think, fundamentally, as much as there are characters on the show who are genuinely enjoyable to watch both for their own sake and how they interact with others by which i mean trip and only trip enterprise i just (laughs) don't think has a sufficient handle on its characters and how they relate to each other as part of an ensemble that you can tune in week after week out of a sense of genuine investment in spending time with these people Voyager, I do feel a fundamental sense of connection to these characters and how they're played, have a sense of who they are that I don't think Enterprise ever gets. And that seriously limits the show's ability to get me invested in what happens to these people. What do you... uh, How do you feel about Enterprise's characters? Do you feel a connection to them that I don't? Uh, Well, uh, it... Uh, that's that's actually interesting because I, I feel like maybe I consume media in, an, in a way that a lot of people don't. Uh, of course, I mean, it, I, that's not to say, of course, we all tune in because we like the characters and we get to hang out with them. And, oh, yeah, I want to see what Janeway's up to this this week. I think we can hope, I mean, disagree with me if, if I'm wrong. I think we can agree that next gener- original series, Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, all had casts that we probably wanted to hang out with more than either Voyager or Enterprise. Would you say that's not- fair? Oh, actually, 
I definitely agree about the original series. I definitely agree about Deep Space Nine. I have always struggled to connect to the next-gen cast. That's partially just nostalgia because of how I grew up, that I consumed Star Trek as a kid through rented videos from Blockbuster Video, and there were just way more Voyager videos than next-gen videos. But honestly, I prefer the characters on Voyager to the characters on Next Generation. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Well, now we're, I, I started this by saying, well, I maybe consume this differently. But now I'm like, wow, what a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No, no, I'm sorry, Doug. No, no we no, all – I mean, that just – Let's not throw around the weirdo card on this, the 14th episode of our Star Trek podcast. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I, no, I mean that actually highlights how. Yes, it's it's very much any media, but Star Trek in specific as well is you know your your experience of it is going to be very personal and it's going to be different for everyone, and that's actually an interesting uh, thing. And I mean, of course, like as a guy who grew up religiously watching Next Generation, discovered Deep Space Nine a little bit later. Like I kind of came back to it later. I oddly enough drifted away from Trek a bit during Deep Space Nine. Uh, right before Deep Space Nine started to get really good, and I would have probably loved it, uh, but uh, I kind of stopped watching Trek for a while, and I came back, and then I was like, oh, this is great. Um, and uh, the original series I didn't watch until quite a bit later in life, but I've since, you know, see, I absolutely see the appeal, and I enjoy it, and I'm into the original series. So I've got these different sort of, uh, and that's true of Voyager and Enterprise as well, like I came back to them later, just like with Deep Space Nine. Um, so you know we're all, and whereas in your case you've got this uh, beloved childhood with Voyager, uh, Next Generation. I, I actually sort of agree with you, uh, despite having grown up absolutely immersed in Next Generation and having it be a, a huge part of my childhood and having this relationship with it. I kind of agree the characters aren't always the most relatable. Like it, it, you know, Deep Space Nine and the original series have probably the most relatable characters. I think you actually may have a point about the Voyager characters being a little bit more the kind of people you might want to hang out with the next generation um, in a few cases. I think that's a, a couple of specific characters on Voyager, whereas a, a couple of specific characters on next generation are people you definitely want to hang out with. I would hang out with Riker and Troy yeah. uh, with no questions. Uh, Data would be a little annoying to hang out with, but he'd also be fun to hang out with. Probably same with Worf. Um, you know, Dr. Crush is chill enough as far as it goes, but you're right. You get to a point where you're like, yeah, these aren't, these aren't, my pals they're interesting people to watch versus voyager you do have yeah characters almost all of them at some point have a i'd probably hang out with them i think balana might be a bit much but uh otherwise you know and and janeway herself actually um but uh yeah otherwise they're all fairly uh and and that's not to say they wouldn't be interesting to talk to mm. um but i do feel like voyager has the same uh thing that and it did actually in effect uh, next generation a bit but i think it was you know next generation was sort of this high watermark in some ways and it it got past this whereas with voyager they had the same problem of i guess character consistency yeah. um that's not to say they don't write the characters with some consistency but there's very much a sense of they didn't they got went seven years with voyager and only a couple of the characters really got a, a proper hook to them that made you go, yeah, that's what the character is. That's what I can expect from this character, and we can watch it develop and grow. Yeah. Deep Space Nine was particularly good at this. Uh, Next Generation, you know, maybe it struggled a bit. Like, Jordy, I didn't even mention Jordy. He would be great to hang out with. But it's also true that, like, his 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 character, uh, as we meet it, is just that 
He's a nerd and he's enthusiastic. And he's he's brought to life wonderfully by LeVar Burton. Like, LeVar Burton is the reason we like Jordy, if there's any reason at all. 100%. Um, I think that Jordy... Um, I mean, the biggest arc in Jordy in Jordy <laughs> on Next Generation, the Jordy has on Next Generation, is the uh, Leah Brahms arc, which does not has not aged well. Unfortunately, no, no, that is the. <laughs> if you wanted to hang out with him beforehand, I'm really not sure you would after. <laughs> um, and you know, and they never they never found him or Doctor Crusher like a, an arc, and even Troy a, a little bit, uh, and even Riker a little bit. They never sort of found. Well, here's this developing hook i'm not saying he needs to have a big ongoing storyline but you look at what happened with Worf and with data they had ongoing concerns and that fed into either smaller stories and sometimes even larger stories i mean Worf's personal problems became the whole galaxy's problem at a certain point to an yeah. extent both on uh, next generation and deep space nine um and that that kind of thing was done on deep space nine um so in Voyager, I feel like there's Janeway, and even Janeway, only to a limited degree. There's Torres, uh, there's Seven of Nine, and there's the Doctor. And they try with Paris, and I guess I'll give them credit for Paris. Yeah. But almost everyone else on the show, and Chakotay is really a problem with this, they have a real hard time locking in to what they're doing exactly with that character and it just becomes well this week it's this and that week it's that like it's there there's no consistency as much as there should be on that i think i'd agree with um, that sorry no 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 yeah. so i said to cut you off but i yeah look i'm not going to defend the character of chakotay where he starts out where he ends up and the long interminable space in between i do I think I've said this before, that I think Voyager really suffers from how we consume TV now. Or even from... The only way to consume Voyager is basically the way that I consumed it as a kid, which is in two episode blocks drawn at random from a suburban blockbuster in the far outer reaches of Sydney, in which it is completely unpredictable and random which two episodes you will end up with, based on what the <laughs> very small number of other Trekkies in town have already gotten out from that one suburban blockbuster. You might show up and the video on the shelf will be from season one. You might show up and the video on the shelf will be from season four. You might show up and it'll be the finale. You don't know. But in this wild and crazy gambling that was teenage nerd life in outer suburban Sydney in the 2000s, you at least have some... A, the fact that they evolve in unpredictable and random ways from episode to episode is less of an issue because the whole thing is to some extent unpredictable and random. But also it makes... You don't notice the fact that there is less... There is less progress from season to season or that in some cases like Chakotay there's no real progress from season to season it's a good show to be consumed in that way because like I said it's within a fairly narrow band of quality you have some idea what you're going to get Enterprise I think has the the other problem that like Voyager, it focuses on a relatively narrow band of characters to the expense of the rest, just as Enterprise, as Voyager was justly maligned as the Seven and Doctor show guest-starring Janeway. So too, Enterprise really focuses upon the core trio and to a lesser extent upon Phlox and lets Reed, Hoshi and Mayweather sort of wither on the vine. 
but I think that the minor characters on Voyage on Enterprise are neglected way more than the lesser characters on Voyager. And I think the major characters on Enterprise don't benefit from the focus on them in the way that the major characters on Voyager did. Yeah, okay, well, you've raised a point that I wanted to raise as well, which is very much that, and it's it's actually fascinating in the broader look at how TV was structured, and I think we talked about this a little bit in the episode about Star Trek as a TV show, um, the fact that um, it's very much at the transition. The 90s were pretty fascinating for TV, and maybe <laughs> I'm just saying that because I grew up and really fell in love with the medium of TV in the 90s, but it really is this a massive transition that happened across the 90s and into the late 2000s on how TV shows were produced and consumed. And it's very much, uh, I, I would say, that's another thing I find interesting about Enterprise. And as you say, it's the meta story, but it's still interesting to me. Uh, because Voyager is absolutely a syndicated TV show with the idea that, yes, you can pick up an episode, watch it for 45 minutes, and consume that Star Trek content. And maybe, uh, and and you don't need to follow a lot of threads if there are ongoing threads because their tv shows had had some degree of serialization for decades at that point there were absolutely storylines that would and and elements that would pop up and resurface and, and recur but it was handled quite differently than especially modern television but even in the late 90s there was sort of a new structure that was forming with deep space nine uh that's the inter interesting thing that deep space nine is is fairly heavily serialized in some ways not not so much that you couldn't pick up a random episode and understand more or less where you were and watch the show unfold they didn't have massive changes to the status quo or arcs that absolutely consumed where everything was going other than perhaps the odd two-parter or multi-part episode like the uh i believe it's the season two three-part opening mm -hmm. um things like that um and of course the finale is a essentially one big 10 episode serialized storyline but other than that it was very much you could pick it up and it would be about dr bashir worrying about his mortality or it would be about jake and nog trying to sell latinum uh to sell to to make some money out of to make five bars of latinum by trading stuff or or get a, a baseball card for cisco um, and that was, it fit within the larger narrative, but it would always be like, oh yeah, we'll mention these events that are going on in the background, but you're not going to be lost if this is literally your first ever episode of Deep Space Nine. Yes. Other than the larger, <laughs> other than the larger aspect of it being a weird sci-fi show with a lot of crazy stuff going on, <laughs> um, <clears throat> which you can't help about. But I mean, assuming you knew, uh, I mean, a, a little bit about Star Trek and what it was and what was going on, you could follow the events without Agreed. a lot of trouble. Sorry, did you want to say something? No, yeah. I, I, all I was going to in, interject is I think that DS9 really benefits in terms of being episodic plus, if you like. There is an individual episode you can enjoy on its own merits that is enhanced by your understanding of the broader arc, but which isn't contingent upon it. As a long-time viewer, you get more out of it, but you're not excluded as a casual viewer which I think is a significant difference from how Disco and Picard do serialization, where it is really, this is the chapter from the story. Right. Deep, Deep Space Nine never forgets that this actually has to be an episode with a beginning, a middle, and an end, that a casual viewer might not get the same experience, but they will get some sort of a meaningful experience. So, 
cut you off. Continue. No, that's that's exactly right. And I would argue that that's the thing. Deep Space Nine is still early enough in the transition. And I, I don't even want to make it sound like, well, this is a transition towards something else. It was a way of doing television, which I really like, and I actually think it's almost an ideal way of doing it. Uh, I would like to see... I got... You know, we talk a lot about how overly serialized television is, but I actually did get frustrated in the early days when every show would just be a big reset button every yeah. time. Again, I think we talked about this. You'd just be like, well, I learned a lesson this week, and I'll forget it next week. You know, that kind of thing. Um, we uh, blew up a planet, and we're never going to mention it again. You know, that kind of thing would happen uh, in older TV, and it was it could get pretty frustrating, and I think... Uh, it is good that, and especially given the nature of TV, I think it's good that it moved on and became a different type of uh, medium in some ways. Um, which is why exactly it's, and I think Deep Space Nine is almost a perfect uh, middle ground uh, where it is standalone stories, but they're nodular. They fit into a larger ongoing narrative. Uh, that's why it is frustrating. Voyager was frustrating at the time. I know that's why I, I stopped watching Voyager almost immediately. And, uh, but even, you know, Decades later, what, getting you know what, finishing Deep Space Nine and going, well, now I'll watch Voyager and see what it's like, and going, this is really frustrating because not only uh, are they not picking up the, the, the torch where Deep Space Nine dropped it, they are actively sort of fighting their own premise in many ways uh, by not acknowledging development and growth of even just the characters, let alone the storylines and the ideas that they're throwing in. There are serialized aspects in the manner of deep space nine but nothing like oddly enough the one thing that voyager does maintain which i do like is the fact that as they move through the delta quadrant they encounter other races and 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 uh cultures which they of course have to leave behind so you know you're going to see this race for a season and then you're not going to see them again because they've been left behind at the other end of the galaxy and at least in one case on the other side of, side of borg space sort um, of i mean m mostly yes we do see quite a few Herosian and Talaxians in season seven despite the fact that they are really meant to be tens of thousands of light years away and that's sort of well well yeah. hang on I would say, see, that's the thing. I would, you can see them coming up with ideas for why a certain race would have to stick around and be, and the Herogen are very clearly that, even though they didn't use them to their full potential. But the fact that the Herogen are hunters and they're determined to chase their prey makes you go, oh, okay. Well, the Herogen are going to stick around and follow the vo the, the Voyager all the way home <laughs> because they are hunt a race of hunters. That actually makes perfect sense, and they could have kept using the Herogen throughout the run of the show. Uh, there's there's a couple others like that I'm trying to think. I mean, obviously the Borg have their super-powered speeds, and famously Q can show up whenever he wants to. Um, there's a few like that. Um, but also, but I would argue that... Um, and of course, yes, there's always a little... Uh, there's a, there's always loopholes, like the Talaxians showing up in Season 7 for, for Neelix's uh, farewell. Yes. Um, but I, I, they, they put thought into it, is my point. It wasn't just arbitrary. Is, is, that's all I'm saying. No, I agree uh, with I that. Don't, I'm not objecting to Herogen showing up, or to, you know, Talaxians showing up in Season 7. It's not a big deal. I just like the fact that there's a sense of progressing through the galaxy. That, that's the one thing that I really appreciate in terms of serialization. But then, um, in every other respect, I mean, there's, there's, and it's not that everything has to be serialized, but it takes away from the drama and it takes away from the character growth and it takes away from things that could be developing over the course of uh, a season or two. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't take advantage of the medium that it's in, in any real sense. And there's, you can argue seven of nine, um, one or two other 
uh, bits and pieces. Again, they try to do it with Paris, uh, but they they just slam the door so quickly on, as with the McKee characters, they slam the door so quickly on really letting them develop and grow and, and clash and be dramatic. And I think it might have been born out of the sense that, well, Star Trek is utopian, everyone's happy, it's great, everything's good, uh, we can't have too much... I mean, that was actively something that Roddenberry apparently didn't want, which was you no know, conflict among the main characters. And you can see that porting over. But they managed to do it in Deep Space Nine. Mm. So uh, if they could do it in Deep Space Nine, they should be able to do it in uh, Voyager. Enterprise at least has the this... Uh, and now Enterprise is getting much closer to something like a really serialized storyline. And in fact, they tried many ways of doing a serialized storyline, which I found interesting, whether it works or not. But I think format-wise, I actually think... Um, uh, I don't have any real criticisms of Enterprise, just in terms of the format. You can argue about the story they told with that format. But in terms of saying, well, let's do one big serialized story with uh, the... Um, uh, the the Oh my God, I'm forgetting what they're called. Zindi. the The... Zindi, Zindi, thank you. Um, and the spheres and spheres and everything, uh, you know, that was relatively that was well done just conceptually, and and uh, then having a series of three parters or two parters and four parters in the final season was a really s s cool move, and I really a Doctor Who <laughs> model which we've never seen since yeah. in Star Trek or anywhere else. I think that's a really neat uh, way of handling it. Me but too. it does it does it does show that that's how you know the the, the how television was evolving as those two shows were on the air. Yeah, no, I, I uh, go ahead. I equally find that transition from a syndicated episodic model to how we consume TV now in a streaming serialized way to be absolutely fascinating. I, if you haven't read it, um, Alan Seppenwall's book, The Revolution Was Televised, I think is a really, really neat exploration of sort of the key. TV comedies and dramas of the late 90s and 2000s, which prefigured that shift towards the prestige TV model. And one of the shows that he picks as part of this is Battlestar Galactica, and in the context of that, he discusses Deep Space Nine as one of the key moments in shifting how we made and consumed TV. It's a really excellent book on a really interesting topic. And I agree with most of what you just said in terms of that Voyager doesn't take full advantage of its premise i don't think anyone could argue to the contrary and i definitely agree i really like the way that enterprise season four is set up i think that the idea of two, like you said the doctor who model of short serials is a really interesting one and one that uh, if anything i think it makes it easier to tell self-contained stories as part of a three-part structure in that you have a the beginning of the story, the middle of the story, the end of the story, but each of them can have their own components, as opposed to being sort of flattened out as part of a much longer narrative. And that... I do have a complaint about how season three of Enterprise is structured. I don't think the idea of telling a season-long story is a bad idea by itself. I do think that if you're going to do that, you need to have a season's worth of story to tell. And season three of Enterprise, at the time... I recall, was really well received just because there was that desperation for Star Trek to at last try something new after how incredibly aesthetically conservative Voyager had been and seasons one of two of Enterprise had been. But watching season three of Enterprise now, I think you can really see the seams that it's really awkwardly paced with a lot of the actual plot sort of taking place in the latter half of the season. And with digressions 
at the early part, which seem only barely related to what else is going on, that you have a seasonal arc that doesn't have enough plot to sustain the whole thing, and that doesn't really have enough reason to, uh, that, that doesn't take advantage that you do have a whole season to flesh out who the Zindi are. Because it does boil down pretty rapidly to there's the good Zindi, Degra, who looks like us, and there's the bad Zindi, Dolim, who's a scary lizard, and there's the special effects Zindi, who don't do much of anything, and that despite a brief attempts to attempt to bridge the gap between the good Zindi and the bad Zindi, it does fairly... In terms of plot, there's just not an awful amount going on. And you could chalk that up to the fact that this was the first time they'd tried something like this. But I, I just feel that if you're going to spend a season doing something, you have to have a clear idea of what you're going to do with it and how that story is going to evolve. Because as it is, the whole thing just feels like a massive missed opportunity and like butter spread too thin over too much bread. <laughs> uh, well, I don't... Uh, fully disagree with you. I absolutely understand what you're coming from. Uh, I, 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 I kind of disagree, but I think, uh, or I kind of agree, but I think the uh, context, the perspective from which we're looking at it uh, might be uh, important to consider here. Because again, we had seen some serialized shows in, I guess, 2003 when this aired. Um, and uh, we weren't far off from... Um, uh, I guess, uh, Lost hitting the airways. I think that came around 2006, 2007, something like that. I think so, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, actually, and, uh, actually, which I would say is... It's like 2005, I think, because I think yeah. Oceanic 815 crashes before the presidential election, the 2004 presidential ah. election. So it okay. started in 2004. Oh, okay. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, it was just... And I would say Lost was pretty revolutionary for genre television in that regard there were um again we'd as we've already said uh deep space nine um i think um uh honestly buffy the vampire slayer i think was uh crucial and again that's a show where you see and i i think i mentioned this in another episode those are two big shows that i think show different models of serialization that are still nodular buffy was very nodular it had a bit more of an ongoing arc but each episode was very discreet and ete and uh and told its story as a self-contained story that would maybe lead into the next story. That was kind of how it tended to work. And then there'd be an ongoing like villain or so forth like that. Lost was the show where it was chapter by chapter, but it was still somewhat discreet because every episode was built around flashbacks around a single main character, which was a smart choice because it made every episode be, oh, this is that episode where this happens in this timeline, which is the flashback timeline. Even though most of what's going on is sort of ongoing, uh, to a certain degree, um, but that's before uh, Enterprise did, or that's after season uh, Enterprise did season three. And I think the context there is important to understand is that they still wanted to tell Star Trek discrete stories in season three. Um, consider that in season two of Enterprise, or for that matter, in any given season of Next Generation, uh, there are background events. There are things happening in the story, like for instance, the Klingon Civil War and uh, the ongoing threat of the Borg and the conflicts with the Romulans and uh, even the who knows when the uh, the bluegills from conspiracy might pop up someday. Any um, day but now. Never, 
<laughs> it never happened, but it could. It's not impossible. Uh, Discovery did a season that was based around like the uh, the galactic wall from the very first or the second pilot of uh, the original series. So, I mean, who knows when they can choose to call back to this stuff. But um, I do find it... Um, but I think in that context, it was simply a case of uh, we are going to dip a tiny toe in the kind of serialized storytelling that seems to be developing in TV. Um, but we're still going to leave lots of room for discrete storytelling. And in doing so, you are going to uh, up the ante on the events of Enterprise because they're still going out and exploring and talking to other races, dealing with contentious and uh, hostile races, um, and in an ongoing political conflict, which is all stuff we'd seen on Star Trek before. It's just tied to a story that is foregrounded to a certain degree. Um, so as a result, um, yes, you're right. If all you care about are the spheres and the Zindi, it is poorly paced. It's not exciting. It's like, oh, when are the Zindi going to show up? And that's just how television has evolved. We're now like, oh, when is the mystery box going to get opened? When is the next thing going to happen? When is it going to be developed? Um, Star Trek Enterprise Star Trek season three is almost right on the cusp of when we were still expected to just be, well, let's see what's happening this week with hmm. the characters um, <laughs> and how they're, how they're, uh, how they're uh, dealing with life and their various problems, which it still was to a large degree. I like, there's still a lot of uh, stuff that's kind of standalone unrelated. Um, like it, there's a, there'll be a mention of the Zindi stuff. And of course they're in the Delphic expanse. That's the big thing that's going on. Uh, but it's all basically, you know, this week this happens. And the the actual um, plot episodes, as it were, the mythology episodes, as Star Trek like to, as uh, X-Files like to say, uh, are, you know, scattered throughout the season. There's probably seven or eight of them if we don't count developing the Zindi, which tended to happen. And the Zindi, it's almost just a case of, like, the Zindi are a race that we meet that week, except we've planned it as part of the larger story like if we deal with the what's going on with the simian zindi this week it's like yeah but we've already introduced the simian zindi and we knew they were going to encounter them at some point so now we're actually seeing what their problem is but they could have been a race that came out of nowhere in a previous season of star trek as it were uh maybe that's a weak defense of season three i, I you know i'm not i'm not holding it up as great i do prefer season four uh but i i just do think that um it was because it was such a time of fluctuation for tv i think uh, you have to cut it some slack in that regard, and I think if you view it through th that lens, uh, it becomes more interesting and better in that regard. Yeah, no, I totally take your point in that regard. That yeah, it, it it has to be graded against a background of this not having been done before. It's it's like it's like rewatching. It's like the Seinfeld effect. Stuff on Seinfeld that these days seems old hat was revolutionary in its time, and it seems old hat because everyone's done it since. Um, and no, I, I, I give Enterprise points for its ambition in that regard. I think that if it had pulled off the idea of balancing hang, what are the characters up to this week with the broader arc, that would be a really laudable thing to try. Because you're, uh, you're right, the broader arc can't be the only thing going on. It can't be a purely plot-driven show. I think the reason why I am focusing on the broader arc is just because... There's so little going on in terms of character interactions. It's such a mirthless show. It, I think of all the Star Trek series, in Enterprise is by far the worst when it comes to humour. Either humour in terms of what's amusing to us as the audience, but even just the characters making each other laugh and the characters enjoying each other's company. 
part of that I think comes from the disastrous decision in the first part of the first season to make Archer such a dick to T'Pol, which both plays out terribly and plays so poorly with the fact that Scott Bakula is the world's most affable man, that you choose an actor who is capable of being so charming and so disarming and shucks down to earth and make him play this stiff George W. Bush-esque legacy baby who is driven entirely by resentment. And I just... I think that you're absolutely right that the Buffy format of a show that uses a broader arc at to, as a broader structure for individual adventures in which we spend time with the characters on individual, discrete time together is a great idea. Where Enterprise fundamentally fails to fulfil that is that fundamental failure to develop the relationships between the characters and to develop our investment in them as people and develop investment in them in their relationships with each other. The exception to that, I suppose, would be T'Pol and Trip and their relationship with each other, which is, I think, the lasting legacy of the show and I think the one thing that it generally does pretty well. I do really like what they tried to do with Trip and T'Pol and I really like Jolene Blaylock and Connor Trinier as performers. But... That alone, I don't think, can sustain 26 episodes, 24 episodes, of just not that much happening on either the micro-character level or the macro-plot level. Okay, uh, well, here's where I think uh, I've hit a point where I disagree with you to a certain uh, I, uh, relatively strong uh, um, extent. Uh, okay. And it's not so much that, oh, I love Archer, he's so great, because it's not that at all. Uh, I think what they were trying to do with Enterprise, and again, this is what makes it interesting, is it, and this is another aspect of TV that was starting to uh, shift a- around uh, the time that uh, Enterprise first hit uh, the screens, uh, which is that um, we were no longer expect. It, 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 it's been a staple of TV for decades that the hero, especially in an action or science fiction show, was usually the greatest guy in the world he was and uh, he was meant to be the most likable hero you could possibly uh, have um and that's actually not surprising because if you want your car- your audience to tune in week after week uh and hang out with someone you want them to be a reliable comforting figure and star trek in particular is usually about space dad and uh sometimes space mom you want it's someone who will make the decisions that um uh that you can trust and that you 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 look to them for heroic leadership. That is a staple of Star Trek. Uh, someone in uh, the AV Club uh, back in the good old days mentioned, I think they were talking about Babylon 5, but they talked about the degree to which t- sci-fi and especially TV sci-fi was about the wisdom of the patriarch. Uh, and even if the patriarch in question is a, a woman, as with Janeway, uh, that's, gen- that's broadly true about Star Trek. Um, I would say, though, that what they were trying to do with Enterprise is a little interesting because it's not an anti-hero drama. Please do not misinterpret me as saying that um, uh, Enterprise is an anti-hero drama. However, we had had at that point a couple of years of shows, especially the prestige shows uh, like The Sopranos, uh, Deadwood, and a few others. And in fact, if you go back to the 90s, there was a show on, for- on Fox called Profit, which was about an absolute monster of a human being and that prefigured a lot of the shows that we watch nowadays 
where he was just absolutely evil and vile and that was the point of the show um and uh which was way ahead of its time in that regard if you like um i don't think enterprise was interested in doing an anti-hero drama but i think it's very much part of the concept of enterprise that archer and the rest of the gang but actually especially archer because he's the focus are not meant to be these wonderful strong heroic types like we see on every star trek they are the people who are evolving into the wonderful strong people that we see on star trek all the time and they are still figuring it out and they are quite literally meant to be humanity after it's gotten its act together to a degree but is still figuring out how everything is going to work in this strange new utopian star trek world and we are maybe a generation or two into it uh only and um while we've certainly solved uh world hunger and and uh the nations of the world are at peace uh we're still human we're still people and grant and we're also seeing all this in the context of the immediate post 9 11 uh bush years yes um so i think it's actually very much on purpose that archer is a very flawed character and you can see crucial points even before we get to season four which is the big turning point on this where he is realizing that maybe as a human he needs to grow and he needs to become someone different there's a big episode where he finally swallows his pride and works with the vulcans and they save um this one ship that they had been fallen just fighting over and it's very clearly meant to be a case of all right, Archer, you've got to put, get your act together. You've got to swallow your pride and work together with the Vulcans. And for that matter, the Vulcans themselves, because as we see in season four, uh, they hadn't fully become the Vulcan race that we get to know and the Vulcan culture that we get to know in later Star Trek either. Uh, they're much more bureaucratic. They're much more uh, science focused. Um, their, their more spiritual side had been suppressed, and uh, which is what we see with like uh, Leonard Nimoy. And that was a his addition to Spock uh you see it starting to develop and a lot of this happens in the very early uh multi-part episode of uh season four yes where two things happen we see of course the followers of Surak I believe it's Surak is the name yeah uh, who's the Vulcan um prophet Socrates or Buddha or Jesus if you like uh who ended up uh promoting the religion of logic we're told in other Star Treks but here we're seeing that their followers are suppressed possibly because you could argue that the new uh the the Vulcan race as we see them are um uh atheists like new atheist types <laughs> they don't want anything spiritual even if it, it it advances their their cultural ideas you also see uh Archer quite literally bond with Surak and uh, have like his mind altered in a sense uh, by mind melding with Vulcan, uh, a specific Vulcan and also the Surak, uh, the ideas of Surak, the, 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 I guess his Katra is what they're passing on. I'd uh, explicitly say it, that it's it, Surak's Katra. Yeah. Right. So, so Archer quite literally be, is a new atheist, if you like, who gets handed, uh, buddha's uh get who who gets to be the reincarnation of buddha for a day and uh it clearly changes him and that was very clearly the intent uh and i think it happened uh so uh 
early in season four because they went, okay, we're ready to see Archer evolve and become a better person now with him having been a bit of a flaw. But I think the show is aware of this. I think it's very much what the show is trying to do. And I think it's successful in that regard. There's other aspects here and there. Sorry, I won't keep blathering for too much longer. But um, there's other aspects in there, for instance, most particularly the character of Malcolm. uh, And I'm like the only person who kind of finds Malcolm to be a compelling character, I think. Yes. But the fact that he is a cipher. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but I do like the fact that he is kind of a relic of the old world. He's a cipher. He's a guy who doesn't want to be part of it. In oddly enough, I think in making him a person who doesn't want to get along with others, who doesn't, um, who doesn't have, uh, who has trouble operating in a group, which is something I can relate to. Um, They've made him a more compelling character than some of, for instance, the Voyager characters who are supposed to be nice and lovable and compelling, but don't have as many distinctive traits. Whereas with Malcolm, his distinctive trait being that he's supposedly non-distinctive, ironically, makes him distinctive, I think. And I think uh, they are helping him to evolve. Again, in season four, they start to deal with him being the proto section 31 guy. Um, And uh, I, I, I find that interesting. I find that to be interesting character hooks this is not the same as i'd like to hang out with them and get a beer with them uh but as characters on a tv show i do find the enterprise characters to be more compelling for that reason and i think their evolution was more satisfyingly done than voyager so that's what i would say so here's the bits i agree with um i totally agree that the season four three-parter about the vulcans is really good i think it is a uh example of enterprise achieving perfectly what it's setting out to do and i think it's as good as the show ever gets i really like that three-parter about the vulcans what this has all really convinced me of i think i've said in the past i would have really liked it if connor trainier had played archer because i think a lot of how he acts would be more understandable if he was a considerably younger as opposed to being a guy who was visibly pushing 50 and B had Connor Trenier's chemistry with Jolene Blaylock in a way that Scott Bakula doesn't and Trenier's ability to sort of sell being roguish with a bit more of a smile and a wink but really what you've convinced me of is that I wish that they'd cast Jason Isaacs as Archer Uh, because I really like how Isaacs plays Gabrielle Lorca, even prior to him becoming pure evil, as someone who is, you know, the Star Trek Captain Gone Bad, or someone who is, in many ways, Lorca, prior to the twist that he's from the Mirror Universe, is sort of an example of what they're trying to sell with Archer in Season 3. Someone who is charismatic, who does have that charisma and that magnetism, but has visibly been jaded and lost his way and who is struggling to find his way and i think jason isaacs sells that because that is the jason isaacs experience whereas i just think it's fundamentally anathema to scott Bakula's strengths as an actor i think that look i really like the idea of having seeing how we get to star trek and having if not an anti-hero drama a show with more complex characters, with someone who we don't necessarily identify with their choices, and someone who isn't necessarily hard up a moral paradigm, but who we are nonetheless invested in and want to root for week to week. And that's fundamentally where I think Archer falls down. It's not that he's it's not just that he's a bad person. 
it's that with anti-heroes like Tony Soprano and Walter White, there is nonetheless a magnetism that we want to see how they are going to evolve, that we are invested in their struggles and not repelled by the fact that they are terrible people, that there is a an allure to it. Whereas, and I think this might just be the fact that Bacula, I don't think, has much chemistry with Jolene Blaylock, or just the fact that Bacula is not playing to his strengths. But I find Archer as a flawed, petulant man, un- as a flawed, petulant man, repelling rather than attractive. And that's not necessarily wanting to have to see someone whose choices I agree with. It's wanting to see someone whose choices I can stand to see playing out at all. Um, but that said, you're absolutely right that it. part of what makes it interesting is that it does prefigure so much of what we've seen in subsequent TV and what we've seen in subsequent Star Treks, that a lot of having a hero who makes terrible choices, who we nonetheless root for, despite their consistently poor judgment, prefigures Michael Burnham's character arc, which is basically that to a T. Um, a lot of the serialization prefigures how Disco and Picard are set up. The idea of having shorter stories that nonetheless fit within a broader narrative arc is how Strange New Worlds is set up. I think I've said this before that I think Pike in many ways is Archer done right, that he is a more down-to-earth, approachable figure than captains on previous Star Trek shows except for Archer. But I think Anson Mount, Pike is within Anson Mount's range in a way that I just feel like there's a disconnect between how Archer is written and what Bacula is interested in playing. So Enterprise, Enterprise's greatest legacy, I think, is that it, it looks a lot more like modern Star Trek than Voyager does. And modern Star Trek has in some ways benefited from having Enterprise try to blaze that terrain and from having Enterprise try to make difficult or audacious stylistic choices that don't really work out. I'd completely agree with its merit in that regard. I just don't want to watch it because it's a lot of what it does well. Later Star Treks have done better. Yeah, uh, I think what we're what we're coming what we're seeing come out of this is very much that it depends what you want out of Star Trek, and that's what's gravitating you towards Voyager and me towards Enterprise, in as much as it's doing that. Um, and uh, you know, I I have never honestly I, I've never. It's not that I don't like characters in my entertainment to be likable and to want to hang out with them but i've never personally had a really strong desire for that i do like shows about uh and movies and things about uh, dislikable characters i've i've uh, this is something i've actually noticed because i've been watching a lot of movies with friends lately and being like oh we should watch this classic movie and then watching it and realizing boy everyone in this movie is really unlikable <laughs> but it's one of my favorite movies uh barton fink is one example of that we came about and the coens in general actually are pretty have a lot of uh non-redeemable characters um when we watched chicago i realized yep they literally have no one in that mo- movie is is or that stage play is likable <laughs> like it's they're all mo- well maybe maybe uh, the exception of uh, john c Reilly's character um but uh, yes mr cellophane himself yeah yeah that's right he's 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 okay um and i i it's never bothered me of course i want to see nice characters i also love stories about good people doing who are who do good in the world you do need that as well but i've always been completely able to engage with stories about even the most dislikable 
hateful characters um, if I feel like I'm on the wavelength of the creator and what they're doing. And I think um, yes, I, I think that's a crucial thing because so again, you know, we're sort of disagreeing about what Enterprise stands for here, I guess. But I do feel like I got what they were doing with Enterprise, and therefore it was okay that Archer could be a bit of a mess, could be unlikable. Same with uh, some of the other characters on Enterprise. Uh, with Voyager, I don't feel like they had that kind of engagement with the characters and and with some other things I, to be honest sometimes with discovery as well i feel like uh they don't quite understand how dislikable they've made michael sometimes which is the problem if they were if they knew and they were fully engaged with that uh she'd be a great character and i think that she sort of accidentally stumbles into being this flawed character that is uh that makes it less satisfying as it could be otherwise um and this sort of now now we're sort of spreading into something um uh, you know we should probably start to lean towards wrapping it up uh, but i am uh, there was one other aspect and this is kind of touching on it that i would like to talk about which is um the politics of both shows both uh, the personal politics yes. and uh the larger sort of again what was going on in the world because uh, voyager was a end of history era tv trek show as we discussed and um uh, the um, um, uh, Enterprise was very much a post-9-11 show. Um, I do know that, uh, again, talking about Carl Garcia, he very much interpreted uh, Enterprise as pandering to the George W. Bush crowd uh, in some ways, which I think is fair, but I, I do disagree with him on some other levels. I think it was trying to push back against that kind of impetus that took place at the time. Uh, and Douglas, I yes. know you've said now we're since we're like just to we're playing devil's advocate here. I know that you had a whole uh, thing about Voyager when Carl was watching Voyager about how um, uh, you felt that some of its politics in regards to, I guess, genetic manifest destiny and uh, nature versus yes. nurture were not the greatest. Would you care to elaborate on that? I really, really, really dislike everything inherent in the episode where Balana is split into her human half and her Klingon half. Even if you interpret it as its most terrible, that being some sort of manifestation of how Balana understands herself. But the idea that Klingons are Klingons and are a certain way, that humans are humans and are a certain way, that, that, yeah, I, I, I just feel... Star Trek has always had a problem with the planet of hats, has always had a problem with the idea that you are what you are. And if you're a Klingon, there is a set range of Klingon behaviours. And if you're a Vulcan, there's a set range of Vulcan behaviours. I feel like Voyager does that worse than most because um, uh, it doesn't... Yeah, uh, as you said, the idea of genetic manifest destiny, which just sticks in my craw and seems at one and so antithetical to Star Trek's ideals. It's such an illiberal notion. Um, actually, and on that, um, Zach Handlin, who's uh, watching Voyager at the moment and whose Patreon you should subscribe to, um, is up to mid-season seven. And has just watched Author, Author, an episode which I really liked as a child, but which he makes really good points, that Voyager is fundamentally far too flippant about the Doctor's humanity. You, that they can't have it both ways, that he is human when he needs to be, but also that we can be okay with the idea that the rest of the cast treat him like a light bulb, or that the rest of the 
we can be troubled by it sometimes, but can then go back to joking about it the next week. Or that it can just be an accepted feature of the Star Trek universe that a whole bunch of humans who are fundamentally the Doctor in every respect are mining ore and don't have a choice about it. Like, it, it's, it's one of those things like Hermione and the House Elves in... Um, in Harry Potter, where the idea that a fundamentally morally unjust order is objected to by one of the characters is played for laughs, or the idea that caring too much or being earnest is in some sense a deeply uncool thing to do. And this, I think, yeah, feeds into Voyager's liberalism, but in a not in a way that disturbs the way things are outlook. I agree with you that Enterprise is not 24. And... I do think Enterprise could go far harder than it does in resisting the moment it was made in. I do think that Enterprise, as a show, attempts to have its cake in and eat it too in telling a story about the war in ter- on terror that sort of could be read both ways. I, I do at least admire that it, it doesn't transform itself entirely into a black and white moral universe in which the Zindi are entirely evil or driven entirely by malice. That said, I do think that there are far more interesting things it could have done with that moment. Enter- I do agree with you that Enterprise is not 24. I think Enterprise would definitely have voted for John Kerry and not for George W. Bush, which is the faintest phrase I can give. <laughs> I think it could go far harder in resisting the moment it was made. I think it tries to have its cake and eat it too in telling a story that's sort of about the war on terror, which is open to multiple interpretations and which could satisfy conservatives while also pleasing people who are against the war. But at the same time, I think that it's probably in trying to tell a story that is not entirely that of the incumbent administration i think there's probably more interesting or more laudable political stuff going on than voyager simply accepting the idea that holograms are slaves and what are you gonna do neither of them particularly cover themselves in glory in trying to depict or create a better world yeah i I, oddly enough, I kind of want to defend Voyager uh, because I feel like the holograms being enslaved was clearly one, an example of them trying to uh, set the table for something that would pay off later. Like they, I think they were thinking in terms of uh, the Doctor gets home to Earth, finds that holographs, holograms or look like him have been uh, turned into uh, mining equipment and uh, uh does something about it or maybe he does something about it from the delta quadrant somehow i don't know how they were going to make that work but i do think that was uh, actually the intent there it wasn't meant to be ah nothing you can do about it i think it was meant to be a case of the doctor would recon would reconfigure everyone's thoughts about what uh artificial intelligence uh, in the era of next generation and voyager would be like um but that, of course, speaks to, again, the problems with the format and the way that they kept backing off from ongoing storylines. And, and there, there are a number of other things in Voyager that were set up in one way and then not paid off properly. And that, I think, um, is part of the problem. And en- that's true of Enterprise as well. And I think that, but with, in Enterprise's case, it was because the show was actually cancelled rather than just coming to a natural ending, unlike uh, the three previous Star Trek shows. Um, 
I will also say, um, but anyway, that's a that's a whole other issue. But I like I felt like that's another thing about Enterprise. It, it was it was moving in a direction where it was trying to do something and probably could have done something, whereas Voyager was just sort of not making the effort, I guess. <laughs> um, and w- so I think that's 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 one of the other things. And I, it's hard to give Enterprise praise for not doing something that they had intended to do. But I feel like the intention and the plan was there in a way that it wasn't there for Voyager necessarily. Um, I'll also say that, um, well, Ed, yes, I would have liked to see Enterprise like firmly push back against... Uh, you know, 9-11 era policies. And I think the fact that it was, it had its plug pulled and the fourth season is light on any real political commentary, although it is there uh, and tries to sort of go into retro nostalgia for Star Trek uh, to a large degree uh, is a sign of them not quite knowing where they were going because, you know, there actually was a big outpouring in 2001 of people saying, all right, let's not go crazy. Let's think calmly. We're, you know, uh, well, let's not start uh, doing vile things towards Muslim. I mean, George W. Bush outright said, we're not at war with Islam. Muslim is a peaceful religion. He said that. Um, <clears throat> and I mean, he it was empty political rhetoric, but he said it. <laughs> um, he wasn't going yeah. out there. He wasn't Donald Trump. He wasn't going out there and whipping, him, whipping, out, whipping up his followers. But he, of course, relied on people who would go out there and 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 uh and would uh do uh, uh would would engage in sort of uh yeah. bigotry and, and hatred like they were happy to use that quadrant of people not to... racist but number one among racists yeah <laughs> they were happy to use that attitude to push their agenda and to quash dissent uh which uh, the dissent quashing, I feel like, really started to get started a year or so after 9-11, not right away. Uh, it started to be like, uh, you know, like Michael Moore, a lot of people forgot this, Michael Moore wrote a book uh, that was uh, basically they they wouldn't agree to publish because it was, of course, critical of the Bush administration. And it wasn't saying anything about the war on terror, it was just critical of the Bush administration and Republicans in general. And it wasn't, wasn't balanced, I guess. And, and you know, oh, you're, you got to defend the current administration or you're you know, helping the terrorists, which is something that the likes of Cheney really like to encourage. Like, oh, if you're criticizing us, you're helping the terrorists. Not even about the war on terror specifically, just if you're criticizing us in anything we do. Um, so in that hmm. context, I think Enterprise has to be given credit for uh, not just right after 9-11. They did the episode with, uh, with Clancy Brown. Uh, in which he is playing a clearly crypto-Muslim character who engages in somewhat terroristic activities. And it's squarely from a sympathetic point of view of he's doing this because he is under attack from a larger imperialist society. And that's why people turn to terrorism, uh, which is something Trek was doing in the, all through the 90s and continued to do into Enterprise, which I'm always impressed by, even after the U.S. had become... Uh, the site of a terrorist attack. And in fact, that is part Mm. of the story of the Vulcan uh, storyline that we discussed as well. The Vulcans in that, the Surak uh, followers are, could be read as uh, 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 religious terrorists. Um, And they are squarely sympathetic. They actually make it explicit. Yeah. They make it explicit at one point that the Cyrenites, the followers of Surak, will be framed as having weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. And the whole thing is being used as a pretext to fight a war an unjustified war against Andoria. Right. I, I, that part of why I like the that season four arc is that I think if anything, it's even more squarely about the war on terror and the war in Iraq than than 
I mean, while season three is not subtle about being um, about the war on terror, I think that 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 arc there's really, really clear and explicit parallels, and that it doesn't play it both ways. It takes a really clear moral standpoint. It's on the right side of history. Yeah, and I mean, it's tempting to say, like, you know, it's funny because as bad as political discussion has become in the year of our Lord 2023. Um, it is worth noting that that saying something like what we just said is pretty mainstream opinion in a lot of ways. And like to actively mm. criticize from the left, from pretty far on the left, uh, things like war, things like um, the capitalist system um, is far more mainstream and far more acceptable via depending on what channels you use maybe not uh maybe not you know the major networks but it's far more it's something you can certainly say and that opinion is out there to a degree that i don't think it was in the early 2000s and it wasn't even just because of 9 11 it was it was just because of the media markets were so consolidated and there were only so many uh, you know the internet hadn't sort of taken over and social media hadn't taken over uh and as a result um you know, I think what Enterprise is doing in that context is not, it, it, it's not as muted as maybe you're making it out to be. I think it was actually a, a pretty squarely for the time uh, strong statement of purpose. And uh, so I do feel like we have to give it credit for that. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I think you're right that they do sometimes go, oh, yeah, let's uh, make not piss off conservatives too much with that show. But I, do, I also think at the same time they knew what they were doing and the people making the show weren't, as you say, 24. No, I, I definitely take your point. I'm... Um, I will say, OK, one other thing. You did have a point here that we didn't directly discuss. It's politically related. Uh, the fact that uh, the, the two shows depiction of women and, uh, you know, I do have to give it to Voyager there because Voyager is the show with uh, the larger, stronger female cast. And <laughs> I saw that in our show notes and I was like, we've been recording for an hour. If I were to start complaining about Enterprise and <laughs> Ent in particular, Enterprise is extraordinarily juvenile groan-inducing approach to sex and sexuality, we would be here for another hour on this beautiful Saturday morning. <laughs> Suffice to say, Enterprise Enterprise may come from after Voyager. It feels like it comes from another world in terms of the cheap titillation and everything about the decontamination chamber and... <laughs> everything about the depiction of female bodies in the show i i know I, I i enterprise has really serious problems with how it approaches gender and sex and that to me is part of why i could not in good conscience recommend enterprise to new viewers because that belongs in the past Yes. Well, let's say for now, uh, like, uh, I basically agree with you. And so we have found common cause. Uh, we have, uh, we have, we have agreed on this fundamental thing that we came in at odds about, uh, that, uh, that Enterprise is not great on uh, dealing, is not a great feminist show. Um, <laughs> progress. Progress. All right. Well, we should probably wrap it up right there. Did you have anything else you wanted to say, Douglas, before we uh, stick a pin in it? Um, I still don't have anything to plug. I'm about to start a PhD, which is very exciting, uh, but which doesn't really lend itself to promoting <laughs> any of my ongoing current activities. Um, I 
if I do write anything that I'd like you to read, I will promote it because so far most of my articles have had more writers than readers. <laughs> Adam, what would you like to plug? <laughs> well, I, of course, would like to plug um, my uh, my other podcast, What Mad Universe, which is uh, you can Google look for it on Spotify and all the other major iTunes, all the major podcatchers, uh, which I do with Philip Rice. We talk about uh, various uh, uh exciting uh the origins of uh, sci-fi and various pop culture tropes um i have a uh website i guess i don't usually plug it phantasmic tales with a ph p-h-a-n-t-a-s-m-i-c tales as in stories.com um where you can uh, purchase some of my uh comics we're trying to work out something because comicsology has uh exploded uh but uh there are some of my comics available there and there's also a website called heroeslive.tv which you can go to heroeslive.tv which is a streaming site for both movies and comics where I am the comics editor Uh, there are uh, a number of uh, you can subscribe and read all kinds of good comics you can also buy the comics individually if you like them uh, digital form Uh, so you should definitely check that out Um, and I'm hoping to sort of merge those two in some ways uh, going forward. Uh, it's going to be an interesting year, and I'll have a lot of a lot of projects, I think, to plug in the coming years, comics-wise. Uh, but uh, for now, I can't say too much about that. But check out HeroesLive.tv, and I do. Uh, I think uh, if you like comics, there's some good stuff there. Outstanding. Live long and prosper. Uh, and I'll see you on the flip side. <laughs>